Mark chapter 10 is where we're going to be today, so if you'd like to open your Bible or navigate on your device. Mark chapter 10, we're going to put in at verse 13 and go to verse 31. The topic, Jesus receives the little children being brought to him and pronounces a blessing over each one. The title of our message, Children of the Blesser God. Let's pray together, especially for me. Father, we do thank you for uh, the privilege, really, of being here to uh, sit under your teaching of the word of God as the Holy Spirit takes these words that were written by Mark under the inspiration of the Spirit and brings them to our hearts. We pray for any that are not believers this morning, Lord, in our midst, that by your grace, their will would be free to see Jesus Christ as their Savior from sin, risen from the dead and coming back soon. And pray for us that are walking with you, Lord, that whatever minor or major adjustments we need to make as a result of uh, encountering the word, that we would do so, because we want definitely to be those who have ears to hear what the Spirit is saying. We thank you and we praise you. We do it in Jesus' name, and those who agreed said, amen. The article was titled, No Kidding, Children Not Welcome to Dine Here. It listed a few restaurants around the country that have restrictions regarding children. At a restaurant called La Fisheria in Houston, the following statement is posted on their door. After 7 p.m., people over eight years old only. We are a family-friendly restaurant, and we also respect all of our customers, so we introduce this new policy to the restaurant. Thanks for your understanding. Houston seems to be sort of a ground zero for these new policies. Another restaurant there, Kuchara, issues cards with rules on them explaining how they expect your children to behave. Children at Kuchara don't run or wander around the restaurant, the cards say. They stay seated and ask their parents to take them to the restroom. They don't scream, throw tantrums, or touch the walls, the murals, windows, or anything of the other guests. The cards end with this final statement about children. They are respectful. On Facebook, I find it alarming that over half a million people like a page titled, You Need to Discipline Your Kid Before I Punch Them in the Face. In another article about what some have dubbed the brat ban, the author concludes, Malaysia Airlines banned babies from many of their first class cabins, prompting other major airlines to consider similar policies. Lately, complaints about screaming kids are being taken seriously, not only by airlines, but by hotels, movie theaters, restaurants, and even grocery stores. Now, you most likely have a strong opinion on these policies one way or the other. If you're on the side of kids being welcome everywhere, anytime, you eventually play a card of your own, the Jesus card, and you quote the Lord saying, let the little children come to me and don't forbid them. Of course, Jesus wasn't talking about whether or not all restaurants should be kid-friendly. The entire quote is this, let the little children come to me and don't forbid them, for of such is the kingdom of God. What do children have to do with the kingdom of God? Plenty. I'll organize my thoughts around two points. Number one, you receive the kingdom of God by exercising childlike faith. 
And number two, you refuse the kingdom of God by emphasizing superficial works. Let's take a look first of all in verses 13 through 16 where we see the childlike faith that is required to be in the kingdom of God. If I say magic kingdom, it might mean something different to you depending upon your age. Magic Kingdom was originally an unofficial name for Disneyland in Anaheim. Then Walt Disney World in Orlando was built. In 1994, to differentiate it from Disneyland, <coughs> the newer park in Florida was officially renamed Magic Kingdom Park and is popularly known as the Magic Kingdom. Now, I bring that up because there is a lot of talk about the kingdom of God among Christians lately, but I'm not sure what they always mean by that phrase, and if you read what they're saying, it's pretty obvious they're not sure what they mean by it either. And so the kingdom of God, it's, it's very popular right now. There's a lot of different understandings about what it is. When we read the kingdom of God in the Bible, it can have one of at least three different possible meanings, but you'll see that they all sort of flow together. Here's what the Bible says about the kingdom of God. Number one, the kingdom of God is the eternal rule of Almighty God over the entire universe. At all times, Psalm 103, 19 is true, where it says, the Lord has established his throne in heaven and his kingdom rules over all. I don't think any of us who believe in God who are Christians have any doubt that God is the supreme ruler of the universe, and he is at all times, and he is in charge. Now, secondly, the kingdom of God is also the spiritual rule over the hearts and lives of people who willingly submit to God's authority. It is entered by being born again. Jesus said in John 3, verse 5, most assuredly I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Talking there about what we would say is salvation. Now, there's a third sense in which the kingdom of God is used in Scripture. It is the future literal rule of Jesus on the earth, also called the millennium or the thousand-year kingdom. In Revelation chapter 20, we read this, I saw thrones and they sat on them and judgment was committed to them. Then I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus and for the word of God who had not worshiped the beast or his image. They had not received his mark on their foreheads or in their hands. They lived and reigned with Jesus Christ for a thousand years. So we understand that God is the ruler of the universe and that he, it is his kingdom. We know that there will be a future literal kingdom on the earth when Jesus returns in his second coming. And we see in scripture that it's proper to talk about entering the kingdom of God now as believers in Jesus Christ. So the question becomes, which of these three kingdoms did Jesus have in mind in this section of scripture we're going to read? Well, there's some clues in verses 29 through 31. We'll get to these verses, but let me read them so that we can see what kingdom we're talking about. It says, so Jesus answered and said, assuredly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands for my sake in the gospels who shall not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life but many who are the first will be last and the last first. Now, Jesus always assumed that the eternal rule of God 
existed over the universe. He could not promise you that you would be rewarded in an age to come unless he was certain that God was the ruler of the universe and that by his providence, he would accomplish his eternal purposes. God's eternal rule is not, however, the kingdom God, uh, of God that Jesus was specifically referring to in these verses. It's just in the background. It's clear that he wasn't referring to the millennium either because you and I will not suffer any losses nor be subject to persecutions during that thousand-year reign. And he clearly distinguishes the kingdom of God from the age to come. And so by process of elimination, the kingdom of God in these verses must therefore refer to God's spiritual rule over the hearts and lives of men. And this is very simple. There's nothing complicated about it. God, who is sovereign over the universe, uh, has postponed the coming of the literal kingdom of, earth, of God on earth because the Jews reject, reject Jesus Christ in his first coming. And in the meantime, uh, we are about preaching the gospel of the kingdom and men and women getting saved and having God rule over their hearts. Now, Jesus' words are simple, but they're a heartfelt and emotional explanation of how we receive or refuse this kingdom. And by the way, there are other kingdoms we could mention. One is Satan's kingdom. He's called the God of this age and the ruler of the authorities of the air. And Jesus definitely believed Satan had a kingdom because he once said, every kingdom is divided against itself, will be laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. If Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And so Jesus understood that in some limited sense, a Satan has a kingdom. And then there are obviously kingdoms of men in the Bible. We read about Babylon and Persia and Greece and Rome. Within God's eternal reign over the universe, he is allowing these kingdoms of the devil and of men to exist as he accomplishes his purpose. And so right now, you and I, we live in a time when the devil has a kingdom, He's the prince of the power of the air. He's the ruler of this world, the god of this age. And there are kingdoms of men, various governments all over the world. We live as a kingdom of believers, spiritually tied together, preaching the gospel to all of those kingdoms on earth against the kingdom of the devil, and there's nothing he can do about it except kill us, and then that multiplies it. And so that's what Jesus is getting at here. And it's a very important lesson for his disciples, as we'll see, and of course for us as well. Verse 13, they brought little children to him that he might touch them, but the disciples rebuked those who brought them. I think that the disciples meant well. They were undoubtedly trying to keep Jesus from being distracted or overburdened. The disciples, however, were not in charge of the order of service that day. God the Holy Spirit was, and he intended these children be there and that they be blessed by Jesus. This tells us, too, that Jesus was approachable and that children loved him. Whenever you watch these movies about Jesus, and the, uh, if the depiction of Jesus is a person that children would be afraid of, they've got it all wrong. Children love the Lord. He was easily approachable. He wasn't some kind of church curmudgeon scaring off children. Now, we have a policy of discouraging kids from being in this main part of the sanctuary. Is that wrong in light of this passage? Is it curmudgeonly? Am I the church curmudgeon? Well, I might be, but the policy is okay. Because when it says that they brought 
little children to Jesus, it means they brought them specifically to be prayed for. It was customary for Jewish parents to bring their kids to be prayed for by the rabbi and to be blessed by him. And we see the procedure for it in verse 16. It says, he took them up in his arms and laid his hands on them and blessed them. And this indicates that each child that came up, he prayed over them and laid his hands on them and blessed them one after the other. Today, we call this a baby dedication, which we perform as part of our regular services here. Jesus wasn't establishing that at any time, in any place, kids ought to be in attendance. It's up to us, therefore, to determine how to best minister to everyone, adults and children. We can be inclusive or we can be exclusive as long as we're doing it in love in order to best minister the gospel. I know people have strong feelings about kids and where they're, uh, you know, uh, welcome and I wouldn't say they're unwelcome, and so I know this is a touchy subject, but I will say this. Kids are a lot less disciplined today than they were just a few years ago. If you don't believe me, I'll take you to Walmart this afternoon. <laughs> we'll just stand in the toy aisle, and I'll show you what I mean. It won't take more than five minutes. And, uh, you know, and now I, having raised my children, having grandchildren that I refuse to discipline, I kind of like it. I, I, get a, I get a kick out of it. I, I, I want to give tips and pointers, but I know I just get punched in the face. Uh, but kids are undisciplined, and, and it, it, it's really difficult sometimes. You know, these restaurants, I mean, this is a, a nationwide movement, this brat ban, because some kids are bratty in their behavior, and their parents don't seem to care about it. Uh, and so Jesus is not establishing that any time, any place, just let the little kids run up to him. I see no interruptions of Jesus in, during the Olivet Discourse or during the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus said, I'm gonna bless the children. And it was very important that he did because it was gonna become an illustration for him. Verse 14, when Jesus saw it, he was greatly displeased and said to them, let the little children come to me and do not forbid them, for of such is the kingdom of God. Assuredly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God as a little child will by no means enter it. God the Holy Spirit was constantly orchestrating the events in the life of Jesus. There were no random encounters, certainly not during the three and a half years of Jesus' public ministry. The Holy Spirit meant for these children to be brought forth, partly so that Jesus could use them <clears throat> as an example. The timing was perfect because Jesus is next going to encounter the rich young ruler and he will be able to use him as a counterexample to the childlike faith of the kids. In other words, the two episodes are linked spiritually by the Holy Spirit. The childlike faith you see in these children required to enter the kingdom of God is not evident in the rich young ruler who walks away from the kingdom of God. So it's very powerful. If these children don't come forward for dedication, an important teaching is going to lose a powerful illustration. Now what is it exactly about children that Jesus was commending? Well, we all know it cannot be the innocence of children for they have a sinful nature and they're definitely not innocent. And children, they can act badly. And in many, many opportunities, uh, they take to act badly. And so I think the key word is receive. I think Jesus was commending their willingness to be dependent to receive from others everything that they need. Under average circumstances, children simply believe that their parents will take care of them. They don't worry about where their clothing or their food 
will come from. We just had the grand boys over for a camp over, an indoor camp out. And when they woke up Saturday morning, they didn't come crying to me and say, Papa, is there food today? Or do we have to go out and beg? And if we do, can we wear clothing? Uh, they, they didn't have any of those concerns whatsoever. They assumed, and rightfully so, that their parents had provided clothing for them and that we would provide food for them. And they were right and we had a great time. And I, I didn't see any worry on their faces at all. And this is what Jesus is going for. And we're to be like that as we grow in the Lord, are we not? Jesus once pointed to the birds and to the flowers as illustrations of how much we ought to trust our heavenly Father to feed us and to clothe us. And so we enter the kingdom of God by having childlike faith, and we should continue in it in the same way. Now, the word receive stresses that the kingdom of God must be accepted as a gift. It cannot be a human achievement, and it's never gained on the basis of human merit. Just as a young child receives everything from his or her parents, so the kingdom of God must be received as God's gift in simple, trusting faith. Now, if you're like me, you're thinking, this is way too simple a lesson for Jesus to be teaching his disciples at this late date in their training, but it's really not. It was essential, especially for them, since they so expected the literal kingdom of God on the earth to be established. It would be, and it will be, but not until Jesus comes a second time. These guys, as we point out frequently, were all about thinking Jesus was going to establish the kingdom of God on the earth for a thousand years. They had recently been arguing about it, about who was gonna be the greatest in that kingdom. And Jesus is, we would say, throwing them a curveball. He's saying, hey, that kingdom is delayed. It's coming, but it's not coming for a while. And in the meantime, I wanna to talk to you about a different understanding of the kingdom of God it is simply the rule of God over the hearts of men as you go forth preaching the gospel. And wherever they find themselves, in the Holy Land, outside of the Holy Land, under whatever government or whatever kingdom, all in the oppressive realm of Satan's kingdom, you are going to give this gospel and men are gonna come under the rule of God and be a part of that kingdom. And, and I will come back and establish the kingdom, but not for a while. Salvation is God's gift to receive. It's made possible by Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection from the dead. Lifted up as he was on the cross, Jesus draws all men to himself. He's not willing that any should perish, but that all would come to repentance and be saved. In that sense, he's the savior of all men, especially them that believe. We don't believe in a universal salvation. When the scripture says he's the savior of all men, it means he's the potential savior of all men and those who believe are saved. When the gospel is presented, God's grace operates on your heart to free your will to believe in him, to receive him. Salvation is by grace through faith, received in childlike faith, depending on no works of righteousness whatsoever. And this is an important lesson for the disciples. And it continues to be an important lesson today because even in the Christian church, we continue to add things to the gospel and say, you still need this to be really saved. 
And so salvation is by grace through faith and you really need to be baptized. And there are churches, denominations that say if you're not baptized, you're not saved. And you need to be baptized in the Holy Spirit. And by that, they mean you need to speak with tongues. And if you don't speak in tongues, there's no evidence that you're saved. Others say that you have to practice something called lordship salvation where Jesus has to be the Lord of your entire life and if he's not, you're not really saved. And I don't even know what that means. I have no idea what it is. I think the Lord is the Lord of, of course he's the Lord. How much of your life does he have to be Lord over before you're really saved? I mean, it's crazy the things that we add to the gospel. And so, so you might think, oh, this is simple. There's this, you must have you know, not had time to study this week if this is the only insight that you can glean from this. No, this is the great insight that men still can't grasp that salvation is by grace alone through faith alone plus nothing. And especially a Jew in the first century needed this hammered in to them. Even after Jesus rose from the dead, the disciples were saying, are you gonna reinstate the kingdom of earth now? And he had to tell them no. And then finally when the Holy Spirit came, they understood what was going on. Now let's move on. You refuse the kingdom of God by emphasizing superficial works. The Gospel of Matthew tells us this was a young man. The Gospel of Luke mentions that he was a ruler, and together with Mark, we see he is rich. Hence, he's the rich, young ruler. Jesus was able to use him as an example of someone who would not receive the kingdom of God in childlike faith. Instead, he was all about works, which we are calling superficial since they are all outward and cannot affect the heart. Verse 17, Now, as he was going out on the road, one came kneeling before him and said, good teacher, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? This seems so exciting on the surface. He came running. He knelt down. He asked the Lord about getting saved. Man, if you're a preacher of the gospel, this is ideal. This is exciting. This makes your day. Good teacher was an unusual way to address a rabbi. It was so unusual that Jesus started there in his interview of this zealous young man. He said, why do you call me good? No one is good but one, and that is God. Now, Jesus' question can only mean one of two things. Either he is God or that he is not good. Jesus was not denying he was good. To the contrary, he was owning up to it. And since God alone can be called good, Jesus wanted to know if the rich young ruler believed that he was God. So you understand what I'm saying? Jesus wasn't saying, oh, hey, don't call me good. No, he was saying, hey, only one person is good and that's God, and I am good, so what do you mean? What do you mean by that? Do you believe that I am God? And uh, we just don't know what the answer to that is because he never answers that. Jesus evidently knew that the rich young ruler was trusting in works to make him good, so he went straight to the Ten Commandments. He says in verse 19, you know the commandments, don't commit adultery, don't murder, don't steal, don't bear false witness, don't defraud, honor your father and your mother. This is a summary of the six commandments found on one of the tablets given to Moses. It's the tablet that dealt with our relationships with other people on the earth. The other tablet has on it the four commandments that deal with our relationship with God. And he answered and said to him, teacher, all these things I have kept from my youth. It's interesting, he drops the word good this time. I don't want to read too much into his omission, but either he feels rebuked or he, he just doesn't know whether he thinks Jesus is God or not. But it's, it's interesting backpedaling on his part. 
Did he really keep the commandments his whole life? In one sense, maybe. It's possible that he had kept them superficially. But therein is the problem. Like all religious Jews, he thought he could be good by keeping certain external rules. In more theological terms, we'd say he believed he could be declared righteous by his works. Notice, however, that he had some sense that he was lacking. He came to Jesus and said, what do I lack? There was an emptiness in his life. I believe he was sincere about his seeking the Lord. He makes a mistake here in a minute, and we'll see why, but his keeping of the law, he said, I, 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 I'm, I do this perfectly. I haven't broken any of the commandments that I know of outwardly, and yet he was empty. And this is the, the problem with religion, of course. There's always that emptiness that can only be filled spiritually by God the Holy Spirit coming to live within you. Verse 21, then Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, one thing you lack, go your way, sell whatever you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come and take up the cross and follow me. The look of love. This could only be reported by an eyewitness. And that's why, another reason why we believe that it was Peter who gave these words to Mark under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And, and think about that, Jesus, I mean, Jesus was God and he looked like love all the time. And to say that on this occasion, man, he had a look that was so loving, I mean, it's like a superlative, it's, it's a great thing. He loved this young man. If you're saved, you'll know what that looks like one day when you see Jesus face to face. And I suppose you'll see it too if you remain lost. The lost will all appear before the great white throne prior to being consigned to hell for eternity. And although Jesus will be there as judge, I can't help but think each lost person will see in Jesus' look that he was not willing that they should perish. He was not willing that they should perish. And they will know that for eternity that they could have chosen Christ. Now, was Jesus teaching that philanthropy and voluntary poverty could earn your salvation? Well, of course not. That would contradict everything he just taught about receiving the kingdom of God in childlike faith, and it would contradict the Bible's entire teaching on salvation. So why this counsel? Well, there's at least two reasons I can think of. Firstly, when Jesus was asked to sum up all God's law, he said it was to love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. The rich young ruler had nothing to show for loving his neighbor. He'd done nothing to help others with his wealth. He said, I've kept, outwardly I've kept the commandments. But Jesus, in telling him what to do, makes it clear that he wasn't using his wealth to help others. And secondly, and more profoundly, the rich young ruler did not love God. How can I say that? I can say that because of how he responded to Jesus in verse 22. He was sad at this word and went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. He was given a simple choice. You can have treasure in heaven after a sacrificial life on earth submitted to God or you can have abundant treasure on earth now without a relationship with God now or in eternity. He chose money over God and that tells us that money was his God. And so it's a clear choice. God, heaven, eternal riches and life, money now, uh, no relationship with God, no eternal life. You say, well, I'll take the money now any day because money was his God. It was in the place God should hold in his life. 
He had run to Jesus claiming to have kept all the commandments when in truth he was guilty of breaking all of them, at least breaking the spirit of them. And then Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how hard it is for those who have riches to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were astonished at his words. But Jesus answered again and said to them, children, how hard it is for those who trust in riches to enter the kingdom of God. It's pretty easy to demonstrate from the scripture that Jews equated material prosperity with spiritual blessing. The more money you had, the more God was blessing you. We still do that today, much as we hate to admit it. We know somewhere in our hearts it's not true, but we still look at Christians who have more than us and think that God is blessing them because of their spirituality. Jesus isn't against wealth, but he always warned about trusting in riches. Because he trusted in his riches, the rich young ruler was in fact the poorest person on that road that day. Here he was in the presence of someone who owned nothing, had nothing from this world's point of view, with a ragtag band of guys who'd given up stuff to follow him, and they were all incredibly wealthy spiritually compared to him. The story of Scrooge works because we all recognize the grip that wealth can exert. Our problem is that we never think it pertains to us because we refuse to see ourselves as wealthy. Yet according to Forbes, and I quote, the typical person in the bottom 5% of the American income distribution is richer than 68% of the world's inhabitants. Now I don't say that to make any of us feel bad. It's just that we sometimes need to hear exhortations from the Bible rather than immediately determining they don't apply to us. And so we hear this and we say, well, you know, uh, the love of money is the root of all evil. And we think, well, that's not me because I don't have any money. Well, think about it for a little while. Let it sink in. Come to that conclusion after you've meditated on that because the love of money grips a lot of us whether we have money or not, and we definitely do it just by virtue of living in the United States. Verse 25, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Now the word for needle is one you would hold in your hand. It's a, it's a needle. A, uh, some say it was a surgeon's sewing needle to, you know, to suture wounds. It's a humorous illustration, and it would be if it weren't for the seriousness of the discussion. Contrary to what Jews thought, the rich man is at a disadvantage in spiritual things because the love of money is so powerful and it gets you off track so quickly. Verse 26, they were astonished, saying among themselves, who then can be saved? Ah, interesting. After nearly three and a half years with Jesus, these guys still had no idea that you are saved by grace through faith. They're thinking, God blesses rich, uh, spiritual people with riches. If you're saying that rich people are, are hardly gonna go to heaven, who can be saved and how does that even happen? It happens by childlike faith, Jesus would say. It happens by you receiving the gift of God, the salvation of God, by grace through faith. These guys had grown up thinking salvation was by works of righteousness performed externally and that if God were pleased with you, he'd bless you. It was a hard habit to break and it's a hard habit for us to break too since we all think there's some good in us by which we can please God by our works. Verse 27, but Jesus looked at them and said, with men, it is impossible, but not with God, for with God, all things are possible. Jesus had just given them the illustration of the child, 
of childlike faith, they should put away thoughts of self-righteous works and come to Jesus as little children and they would therefore receive eternal life as a gift. And I like this. Jesus says salvation is impossible for a man to achieve. That cuts under every religion and every philosophy and everything that is not biblical Christianity. Everything that says that there's something you can do in order to commend yourself with God, some ritual you can perform, some rite that you can perform, some rules that you can keep, Jesus says that is impossible. There's only one way, and Jesus would say, I am that way, that truth, and that life. He is the exclusive way to salvation. Now on the surface, uh, we're gonna see that Peter uh, is starting to get it, maybe. He says, in verse 28, he says, see, we have left all and followed you. And so Peter's saying, Lord, we've done what you recommended to the rich young ruler, haven't we? Well, not really. And here's why. For a time after Jesus' death, Peter went back to his fishing business. You read about it in the Gospels. He hadn't really left everything if he could still return to it at any moment. He had his fishing business to fall back on. So Peter says, we've left everything. Except that when you're not around, I'm gonna go back to my fishing business. And I'm hanging on to that. I haven't sold that. Something else to think about, like the other disciples, Peter was expecting the brick and mortar kingdom of God to be established soon with Jesus ruling and he and the boys co-ruling. They'd recently been disputing with one another over who would be the greatest in that kingdom. You haven't really left all if you think you're trading fishing for a high-ranking political position. Peter says, oh, we left everything. I left my fishing business uh, because I think I should be prime minister of the world. And, and so I, I don't think, looking back, he hadn't left everything and looking forward, he was wanting to gain something. In the Old Testament, Elisha left all to follow Elijah. Elijah came, threw his mantle on Elisha, which was his symbol that you're gonna take over for me. Elisha immediately started to follow Elijah. He was out plowing in his father's fields. He said, hey, I got one thing I need to do before I follow you. Elijah said, hey, what if, what's that to me? Do whatever you want. Elisha took his oxen and his plow and he threw a party. And he took his plow apart and he burned it in a fire and he took the oxen that were pulling that plow and he offered them as sacrifices and burned them and made clear that this was his farewell to his family and to his life and then he was gone, he never to return again. And so he literally burned down any chance of going back to anything else. He had nowhere else to go. That's an example of leaving all uh, to follow him. And so, you know, sometimes in my weaker moments, like 23 and a half hours a day. You know, I'm like, Lord, look what I've given up for you. You ever seen, there's every now and then in a commercial or something, they'll use a seesaw fulcrum kind of thing where, you know, the guy's sitting over here and then instead of an even weight, they put something down and it slingshots him through the sky, you know, to show how disproportionate it is. So here I am over here saying, Lord, you know, I, I, gave, up, I gave up my career for you so that I could serve you. What have you done for me? Well, how about eternal life? Bam, pow, man, you're gone. You're in the stratosphere. <laughs> yeah, that's, and, and, and that's the thing. Peter 
his thinking was flawed in that way. He missed the point. The rich young ruler wasn't being asked to give up anything of real value. He was being offered the gain of everything of true value. Do you understand that? The the idea that you've given anything up on this earth is ridiculous compared to what you gain in eternal life. And so Jesus answered and said, assuredly, I say to you, no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands for my sake in the gospels, who shall not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come, eternal life. Now before you get saved, what good does it do you if you gain the whole world only to lose your soul and perish in eternal conscious torment forever? Well, the answer to that, of course, is none. Doesn't do you any good. When you get saved, you become rich in faith and your promised treasure in heaven, it's gonna be stored for you where nothing can corrupt it and where no one can steal it. Remember a few years ago, those of you who have investments, when all that stuff happened and you lost like half of your retirement? That can't happen in heaven. Whatever you invest in heaven is still there and it's growing. You are rich in spiritual blessings right now as well though, and that's Jesus' point. Maybe your family disowned you on account of your professing faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus says every other believer on planet earth throughout human history becomes a surrogate brother, sister, father, or mother. In other words, let's say you do have to give up your family because they disown you. You've got a tremendously large family and you are spiritually connected to them in ways that are much deeper than your family ties. You know, people say, is blood thicker than water? It is not thicker than the spirit. I'm not saying you don't love your family. I love my family. But you have ties that are much closer to Christians who are filled with the Holy Spirit. And so Jesus says, you don't lose anything. Houses and lands, hospitality all over the earth, wherever you go. You're gonna find Christians who would be willing to take you in and take care of you. There's one other thing you gain, persecutions. I wish you'd left that out, Lord. How is that a gain? Well, your sufferings work for you to refine you as gold in the furnace. After Jesus rose from the dead and after he ascended into heaven, the disciples would count it a great blessing and privilege to suffer persecution. Identifying with him in suffering was great riches to them at the time and they knew it was earning them spiritual reward later. They didn't go around looking to be beat up But when they were forced to say things like, we're sorry, we have to obey God rather than men, and they were beaten for their faith, they'd retreat to the other believers and they wouldn't say, look at what we had to give up for Jesus. Our backs are open, they're bleeding, there's blood. No, they went and they said, hey, check it out. Somebody noticed that we're Christians. They beat us the way they beat Jesus. Hallelujah. They were excited about it. They understood what was going on. I think, if I think I've lost something by following Jesus, I am following him from too far a distance. And I've got my eyes only on myself. But many who are the first will be last and the last first. One commentator said of this verse, it's a wise warning against the self-seeking spirit which lurked behind Peter's comment. The 12 were warned that their priority in being called did not guarantee their preeminence in the future if they lacked the necessary spirit. They had been acting childishly, and they shouldn't. They definitely needed a more childlike attitude. 
Jesus is a blesser. Not just little children, but big children too, like you and I. Just as sometimes we have things in our lives that rebuke us from coming to him to be blessed. Maybe it's condemnation that is rebuking us. Remember, there is no condemnation for us if we're saved. Run to him. If, if you're harboring something, if there's something in your life where you think you've failed the Lord, you know what? You have. You have failed the Lord. We all failed the Lord. We shouldn't take it lightly. But you should get up from that place and realize that he is not condemning you, that he is forgiving you, and he wants you to get up and get back in the race. And so quit relying on that. Quit being put down by that. It could be conviction rebuking us because you're in sin. Well, then you need to repent. And same thing applies. Come to Jesus and get back in the race. Maybe, just maybe, you're not saved. Come to Jesus. His Holy Spirit is here freeing your will to determine whether you will spend eternity in heaven or in hell. That's your choice. The two places exist, but your destiny is your own in, in terms of your choice in the sphere of the grace of God opening your heart. Make the right choice. Don't be like the rich young ruler. We don't know, maybe he got saved later in his life. Maybe he walked away from there and a chariot ran him over and he was dead. Who knows? I just made that up, obviously, but... Today is the acceptable day. If you're not a Christian, uh, the, God, uh, the God of the universe, the eternal ruler of the universe is inviting you into his kingdom. Let's pray.